0: Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it.
1: It was a national vote, it was a national referendum, and Parliament has to respect that. The working class have spoke, and I'm one of them, and I'm with them. I think the people in this country have had enough
2: of experts.
1: The time where people trust politicians, that's over. This is painful, and it will be for a long time. Can you give us a question? I'm not
2: going to give you a question.
1: question. Can you stay categorically? You are fake news, sir.
3: This is a Westminster bubble thing. What?
4: Hi, you're listening to Politics at the Edge, the Eastminster podcast from the University of East Anglia. I'm Alan Finlayson, I teach politics here, and I'm in a recording studio with my colleague and journalist professional, Claire Parisi. Claire, what are we going to do today?
0: So we're going to talk about the news media and democracy and journalism. Uh, because it's really important right now. There are an awful lot of problems facing the news media. It's struggling, I think, on two fronts. Firstly, financial. Um, The news media is struggling to keep enough money coming in and also to do with trust. And we'll talk a lot about Leveson. We'll talk about the misinformation and how all of that relates to uh, the democratic process. So really, if we can't trust what we read in the news, um, how can we make informed decisions about who to vote for? And if there's nobody producing that news because there isn't enough money coming in and there aren't enough reporters, what are we do about that and we've got a great panel have we yeah We're we've not. got a great
3: panel who are you i'm marina printulis and i'm your colleague at its uh-huh. media and politics
4: what's your kind of special interest in that
3: causing trouble <laughs>
0: okay, <laughs> that's Fantastic. true okay who else All right, have we got
4: thank you My colleague, Ben. Ben, tell us what you do.
5: uh, I'm Ben Little. I'm a lecturer in media and cultural politics, and I'm currently working on the influence and power of the tech barons of Silicon Valley.
4: And next to you is Sally. Sally, tell us about you.
6: I'm Sally abrat and I'm a lecturer in communications policy and politics, so I look at the way all of this stuff is regulated. Mm -hmm.
4: Fantastic. So you're the one who really understands all of these issues that Claire's... If
6: only regulators really understood how to deal with some of these issues. (laughs) (laughs) So,
0: um, I mean, I said trust and financial problems. Are those the two big problems for the news media or is there something else? What do you think? I'll stop the marina.
3: Well, yes, I mean, traditionally, that's where we say this is the main problems, trust and money. But I think some of these problems, I mean, we make them sound as something new is happening, especially with trust. And I'm not sure that, it's as new as we want to present it. I mean there was always a problem with media and trust and there was the old days a good old propaganda and we know quite a lot of that. So i think sometimes we're making too much some of, uh,
0: with some of these issues. Ben what do you think are those the two big key issues or is there something else?
5: Yeah i think i think those are those are the two those are the two big issues. I think also the dynamics of social media are perhaps something which is new particularly in the sort of interaction with politics i think. I think that, yeah, the, the trust issues have been there for a long time. Perhaps there is new stuff going on. So you agree time. with me, yeah? Yeah, I agree oh. with you. I agree with you. I think, like, you know, maybe what's happening with the decline in trust, but perhaps the BBC, that's something new in a UK contact context. Yeah,
0: you're right. Sally, what do you think?
6: I, I think there is another piece of this puzzle. Um, yes, I think trust issues have been an issue in the media for a long time. That's not particularly new. Maybe we're having a bit of a low point <laughs> in that regard. But there is something else that I see going on in society, which is definitely of concern for the news media. And that is an an increasing inability to deal with being confronted with things that are problematic or that you don't agree with. And this goes from the trend towards no platforming people across university campuses, which is very disturbing, to the way people are isolating themselves in their filter bubbles, which is maybe an old term now but um the way people's news environments are being limited and limited by what they they can deal with and that is a a serious problem for the role of news media in public discourse
0: okay so we should also talk about um we should bring people up to date and talk about leveson because that's why you're here you've done a lot of work on leveson and and just kind of for people who can't remember or
6: or it's just all too much recap for us what it was all about well, it was a long time ago, wasn't it? <laughs> I did eat, sleep and breathe levison for a while, um, but that all kicked off in 2011. Um, so it's been a long time. Um, and that was back then we said the British press is in crisis. You know, mm-hmm. this is a crisis for journalism and trust. Um, it started off with a massive scandal when one of the big newspapers was found to have been Um, using a private investigator to hack into the phones of a murdered girl, giving her parents the impression that she was still alive because there'd been some activity on the account. And when that came out, it blew out. Um, It opened a whole bunch of stuff that actually had been discovered before by the um, Information Commissioner's Office um, that newspapers had quite a history of doing this, particularly the tabloid press, not not the serious press, um, which is a bit of a division anymore anyway, but um, this uh, led to a judge-led inquiry. We heard a lot of evidence um, from people in the industry, from major politicians that uncovered some pretty um, shady relationships between the press and politicians and also some very um, uh, unethical practices on behalf of some parts of the news media. Um, and we discovered that the um, self-regulatory body was not functioning properly.
0: And that's um, changed, hasn't and it? that
6: has changed. We have new regulators, new self-regulators. Mm-hmm. We have one that was set up basically very similarly to the old one by the publishers themselves, um, most of the publishers. And then we have another one called Impress that was set up sort of by civil society with some ver- various mm-hmm. donors um, and includes many micro and smaller media. So um, we have sort of the big guns, and then we have a few who have stayed out of that process entirely.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Impress, because I spoke to Jonathan Hayward, um, who runs Impress, when he came onto campus uh, last year. And, and I was a bit sceptical. I, I thought that, you know, well, really, what's changed? So I asked him, what's changed since Leveson?
2: Well, one of the big things that has changed since Leveson is that Impress is now fully established. That's the thing that I take some, some credit for. So Impress is the regulator that does meet the recommendations that Leveson set out for what a really good self-regulator should look like. So a small part of what Leveson recommended is up and running, but clearly there's still some unfinished business. The government was supposed to put in place incentives to encourage news publishers to sign up to that kind of regulator and they haven't yet. And meanwhile, you've got another regulator, Ipso, which was set up by the major newspaper publishers. But um, unfortunately, they command very little confidence among the public who tend to think a regulator that's still set up by the major newspapers is likely to repeat the problems that went on in in the past with phone hacking and so on.
0: So he's quite proud of his achievements, but should he be or, or are we kind of no further forward than we were in 2011?
6: Well, we are a little bit farther forward in that, um, at least in relation to some media, there are place, there's a place where people can go and they can have access to a low cost or even free arbitration process. And this was something that was um, definitely missing in the old system. You, you basically, you could make a complaint if you had any issue, you, you couldn't take it to court unless you had a lot of money. Um, and the, one of the big recommendations from Levison was that there needs to be some mechanism that people who don't have a lot of money can still go to, people like the parents of the m- murdered girl, can go to um, and get some kind of access to justice. And also that the self-regulator needs to be sufficiently removed. Now the key problem is the one that Jonathan identified in that the incentives were not put in place. The whole thing that was put um, out in a royal charter which is a uniquely British mechanism, <laughs> included the setting up of this new self-regulator. And there's supposed to be as many as needed. It doesn't have to be one or just two. Um, other people could set themselves up. Then there needed to be an oversight of that, um, which is the recognition panel that, that Jonathan mentioned, that it's supposed to check and make sure that those regulators actually fulfill the criteria that Levison set out. And then on the other side of that system needs to be um, some pieces of legislation in the Crime and Courts Act, which have relate to the damages um, that can be paid and things like that that are supposed to give an incentive for the, the, the actual news media to become part of these regulators. Um, and then it's supposed to be cheaper for them because also there's a problem of people who do have a lot of money going after media outlets and really killing them. And if there are those mechanisms in place, the, the news outlets themselves are also protected.
4: Mm-hmm. Can, I, can I ask you about that? Because mm-hmm. that was the thing that at the time, I recall the press said we should be worried about, that this wouldn't be just used by regular people who had some grievance, but it would be used by politicians and rich people to stop newspapers saying bad things about them. Is there any reason to think that that fear has any grounding?
6: Well, politicians and rich people can already stop newspapers from saying bad things about them because we have injunctions and super injunctions in this country which allow them to actually block things from ever even being talked about. Right? So if you have enough money and you can take a newspaper to court, you can stop them even ever mentioning anything about whatever it is that you don't want them to talk about. So um, if you're of that level, you have that power. I don't think that's the worry. What what we're missing though is actually that protection on the other side that protects smaller media if they get in this, because if they are a member of a regulator, then they don't have to pay these court fees and damages. And that, that was the idea is that they also have a benefit from being part of the system. So
4: does, does this cover not just the big newspapers that everyone's heard of, but smaller magazines and smaller outlets?
6: Well, that's exactly what Impress is actually covering now, is the smaller ones. And you have a lot of new media now. If we get into the whole issue of what's changed, we have a lot more micro media. We have a lot more local media that have stepped up, which are using um, new platforms, which are operating in a very different kind of business model. Some of them are, um, you know, voluntary. Some of them are funded by various um charitable institutions um and they don't have the capacity they don't have big lawyers like the big ones have and they they need help and so they're the ones that are part of the of impress for instance and and they can use that they can get the legal support if they're get taken to court and and they make mistakes i mean every, everyone in the news media is going to make a mistake sometime you know
5: there, and there are, there are examples, not in the UK context that I know of, but in the US context of very rich people shutting down news outlets. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Gawker got shut down by Peter Thiel, uh, who funded Hulk Hogan's uh, court case against them. Now, you might you know, question the, sort of the, the merits of a publication like Gorka, but the, the fact is it pissed off a rich man and he, he got it closed down through, mm-hmm. through litigation. So this
4: is Peter Thiel who Peter set up Thiel. PayPal yeah. and yeah. now yeah. is involved with the... Was advising the,
5: f- the first government. investor in Facebook, all of that sort of stuff. So,
0: Yeah, interesting. All right, well, um, while we're on the subject of Facebook, another guest who came up to, to talk to us at UEA um, last year was Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of The Guardian. Um, and he was talking when he came about the problems with Facebook and the impact that has um, on the news media.
1: Facebook is this giant sort of toad now, sort of sitting in in the middle of something or other, and it's making unbelievable sums of money. And basically it's sucking all the advertising out of all the papers that are, just don't know how to cope with this. So it's a a massive problem if you still believe in the old-fashioned thing of, you know, we're going to send reporters out and they're going to come back and bring us the facts, because who can afford reporters any longer? Reporters are quite expensive. Uh, and getting fax is quite expensive. I, mean, I remember the discussions we had about Facebook and you know, we all thought Facebook was this silly thing where people were telling each other what they had for breakfast. We couldn't see that it had any relation to news at all. And look where it is now, 1.23 billion people a day. It is the internet for many people.
3: Can I come into that? Be- because as I listen to that, it is as if all the previous reporting it was investigative journalism, which is not true. I mean, usually the cases that we uh, refer to when we are talking about the golden age of investigative journalism, we have to go back to the 60s. And if you hear that, is that. that as if before we had Facebook and so on, there was all these people running around getting all the facts, and it was a very small number of people who were doing that for economic reasons, because it takes quite a lot of time, because people usually they follow certain trends rather than trying to expose certain things. So although I agree in terms of the role of Facebook today, it, it does make it sound as if there was this golden age, which I'm not sure if it was there.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And what has the news media done? It's followed each other from one story to the next. They 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 follow they go to press conferences, they churn things out. I mean, in a sense, you know, it's hardly surprising that we are where we are. Were you, what about the impact, um, Ben, of Facebook? I mean, it has been huge, hasn't it?
5: Yeah, I, was, I actually just wanted to follow up on this investigative journalism, mm. Mar- Marina's point, really. And uh, I'll come to Facebook in a sec. But the, the, what's really interesting now is that a lot of investigative journalism is actually happening in civil society organisations. So um, organisations like Greenpeace have their own investigative journalism unit, which then exists primarily to fill that void. So like, you know, the, econ- the economics of journalism is changing. And some of the work isn't actually happening in newspapers anymore. It's happening in in organisations which are funded in completely different ways,
6: or in hyperlocals like the Bristol um, group that has started from a bunch of volunteers and now has a relatively sustainable little operation that that does some really good investigative journalism at the local level,
0: and the funding models are changing as well, aren't they? Mm.
5: Yeah. So you know, so for instance, if if it's uh, Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth who are, who are paying for the investigative journalism that comes from their members. So then, there's a need to, you know, for these organisations to show high-profile successes and victories, and part of that is getting the newspaper coverage. So it's the newspaper coverage of the stories that they have, you know, uh, they've broken f- effectively, um, which justifies them to their members, which then ensures more. So it's it's a completely like those sorts of things are working in completely different ways from the traditional models of of journalism, and you know, the guard, the Guardian, like you know, Glenn Greenwald. Um, you know, is, is selling The Guardian and the New York Times stories of these you know hugely significant mm. um, international, like the Guardian's not doing that research primarily themselves.
0: But I, I mean forgive me for being a bit old-fashioned, but I am a bit worried about impartiality here because you know, Greenpeace are a campaigning organization. they are there to Well, to they're, not, they're not impartial. <laughs> so, but, but isn't that what the news media should be? Shouldn't we be providing some kind of impartial, where possible, best possible version of the truth?
3: To the yeah, possibly, ideally, but this never happened. So now <laughs> what I think Ben is saying is at least now the other side, the good guys that are trying to save the planet or other things, they have a chance and they're doing their own investigative journalism and they push these stories to the mainstream. But studio. doesn't that mean We're the bad
5: guys will do it too? Well, they've always
6: been oh, doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the Daily Mail and Daily Express have existed already, right? What, if we had this ideal of the, the, you know, the balance and the impartial view, was in, in broadcasting. Be, it's the rules, right, they yeah. have to be, but the press has always been, uh, you know, Pakistan partisan yeah, right. particularly in this country so I don't think there's much difference in that. Don't point. say but
3: particularly but in this country because I can bring other countries well, yes, in many now many other which but is but really, we really government.
5: bad But we can, we can look particularly at something, an in institution from this country, in the BBC and the BBC is trying to stick to that line of uh, impartiality, of objectivity, all that sort of stuff, and it just doesn't it just doesn't Read as it used to, because politics itself has become so much more polarized in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Like you know, as a consequence of the 2008 crash, maybe like you know, so so this idea, this attempt at impartiality, this attempt at objectivity, like sort of, is almost illegible given where people's political positions are now. Journalism is like is an industry dominated by people from public schools or like massively disproportionately represented you know, the, the most elite schools in this country, so that people going into journalism and being successful in journalism have a particular sort of worldview anyway. So okay. I actually think, you know, if Greenpeace are going to...
0: Yeah, you're, you're right, absolutely. Do do some good a, work, let yeah. them do it. Yes. There, is, there, is, there is a major issue around it. class. So,
1: but
4: let's think what the, other argue, the counter case would be, right? It, it would be that the things the Daily Express, whatever did, the partisan investigative reporting, wasn't a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was a good thing, though, was, was newspapers seeking stories that they thought of being a public interest and covering them and reporting on them. That, it seems to me what you're talking about is people who will be looking, not just for waiting for stories to occur, but actively seeking things out to try and push their... That's investigative position. journalism. That's, no, 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 no. There's a difference between, between I've already, I, want, I already want you to think position X, I'm going to go and find a story... That convinces you of that, and call it investigative reporting. And just looking around and hearing about something and thinking, we better find out more about that. That sounds like hang on, hang on. It doesn't
3: work like that. It works a little bit more like Ben says. You are doing a certain job. You know that there are all these scandals going on in terms of environment, in terms of corporate power, and so on. And some people bring it to the forefront. I mean, I don't, I don't think they start from the premise that you say that. Okay, I'll go out and (laughs) I will find something which is going to convince them. I do.
4: I saw it in I a mean, movie. It was just like that. Wait, 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 which was movie was that? <laughs>
6: <laughs> oh, don't don't forget that there's a role here for whistleblowers. Yeah, that's what she's and talking about, right? Well, no, that that's a little bit different. What she's talking about is people who are operating in a space and they're familiar with what's going on and therefore they know what direction to investigate in. But whistleblowers need a res- responsible place to go to, right? And they need to have adequate protection in order for investigative reporting to, to really work. I mean, w- you know, we've have some most of the major stories that have happened in the last decade have been from whistleblowers who have known that they can go to the Guardian, the New York Times, and WikiLeaks. And we write and WikiLeaks. You know, they can go to some trusted journalists. You know, who who will treat their information responsibly, right, and get their message out very. Widely, right, and so while Greenpeace might not be able to play exactly that same role, they might be able to do, you know, what Maria was talking about in terms of they know some things that are going on and they can follow up and get, you know, get some information and do some proper investigation. And I think there's a lot of space for that. And Global Voices is doing that, and pl- play, you know, others who are not so single issue are doing that. Um, but there still needs to be some sort of stalwarts of mainstream journalism to which, you know, people can feel safe going to and they still need the protection in order for investigative journalism to survive.
0: Okay, thank you. We should pause there because you need to leave us, don't you, Sally, unfortunately? (laughs) So we were going to talk about Facebook, we got a bit sidetracked. Um, Alan Rusbridger was mentioning the financial problems of Facebook. You know, he was saying basically they're sucking all the advertising out of the industry and that's one of the reasons why newspapers and the news industry is struggling. Is that borne out now by what's happening?
5: So I think, yeah, you've you've got to look at the revenues they're getting and Facebook's making like 40 billion a year in advertising revenues and that 40 billion not all of it's going to be sort of new economic growth sort of stuff in in the advertising some of it's going to be coming from somewhere and a lot of that is coming from newspapers and i think a couple of years ago things were looking very 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 bleak indeed um uh, you know revenues declining by like 10 20 percent and most sort of former print titles um you know huge staff layoffs all that sort of stuff um it looks now possibly that things are starting to turn now there's been a lot of effort and energy put into subscriptions and particularly digital subscriptions so the New York Times now has over a billion in revenue due to the increase in, in subscriptions which is which, you know, massive that's the first the largest it's ever been and the Guardian is actually increasing um, in in terms of its its income and um, so this suggests that maybe something's changing and, and maybe what's happening is um, the newspaper industry is moving towards something like has happened for television with Netflix and Amazon Prime. So the funding model is gonna be subscription-based. Now, the thing about Netflix is, is that Netflix managed to make uh, a business in an, in an environment, a, a su- very successful business, in an environment where basically all of their content was available for free, yeah? So we remember um, Kim.com, Mega Upload, all of that sort of stuff, you could just go and access all the TV content you wanted for free. Um, but people chose to pay for it partly because it was convenient, partly because Netflix had good branding, I suppose, and, and had also a good because user it's more experience.
0: reliable, isn't it?
5: Yeah, yeah. And there's not, you're not, It's it's definitely legal. So there's this sort of ambivalence about, like, or um, not ambivalence, ambiguity about whether things, you know, watching stuff online was legal or not. Um, so so Netflix made this successful business out of giving, making people pay for something which is freely available anyway. Um, and it looks like that's what that's what places like the Guardian New York Times are doing now is that they're they're forming they've they've got a business model which means that even though you can access all your Guardian articles for free online people are still choosing to pay whatever it is 50 quid a year to be a member and that's starting to pay off so that's interesting it's one of those things where uh, you know a new sort of dynamic enters the industry for newspapers um, like you know Facebook Twitter Google totally shift like the advertising landscape And after a few years, these companies start to find a model which works. Mm
0: -hmm. We haven't talked about politics much, have we, and politicians, and that was something that Alan Rusbridger brought up. Um, And he was talking about how um, social media has changed uh, the way that politicians behave and behave in relationship uh, to the traditional media.
1: Donald Trump can now reach 25 million people with every tweet. He doesn't need to go via newspapers. He can speak directly to 25 million people and every time he tweets, people then write about it, and he's reaching hundreds of millions of people. He's realised that, and this has all happened in the last 10 years, that he doesn't need the media. In fact, he goes out of his way to say the media are liars and scum and dishonest, and to denigrate them.
0: So um, how much of a problem is that kind of thing with Trump and his tweets?
3: Well. He's right, obviously, yet yeah, Trump does that, and he doesn't care very much about traditional media, and he doesn't care very much about what he's going to say, and he's just trying to attract the attention of the people, and he has the attention of the people. The problem, however, is to make the media sound as if they're the main reason why Trump is where he is, and they're, I- they're not. I mean. Okay, he found a vehicle, Twitter, new media, and he's using them in a certain way, but there were other grievances that they have to do with American democracy and democracy more generally, and this is why Trump is there. So wh- what I'm trying to say, people sometimes make too much of the media, but they forget that there are other reasons behind, and this is just a vehicle. On the other side, um, apart from having Trump using them, uh, Twitter and other uh, social media like that, Everybody can do that. And other people are attracting quite a lot of attention. And all of us, we have s- a few thousand of um, Twitter followers that we oh wouldn't. not huh? <laughs> oh. well, <don't> use it. <laughs> Follow Ben. Well, I don't, yeah. I, don't ben <laughs> I don't use it that how much. How many followers have you got? Uh, 1,500 or something. How, how can you have fewer followers than me? You're famous. Uh, because when I was doing, for example, the big media and BBC and stuff like that, I didn't have Twitter. I just had Twitter after I did that, um, and I don't use it. Um, sorry, but I find some of the stuff that some of you are doing a little bit pretentious. Yeah? <laughs> I have opinions. <laughs> so you just go. <laughs> I have opinions. <laughs> And I'm not very good at that. I do have opinions, but I'm not trying to have opinions. It's
5: a particular skill. It's a particular skill, like academic Twitter. i have just been
3: burned. (laughs) I'm not talking about you, but there is something there. You have to be provocative. And you have to sound as if you have an opinion about everything and that's what so Trump's good at right yeah and he's good and I'm not that good at, anyway I mean. but
5: but I mean but I mean the thing is is to sort of take that and make that the reason for him being president or ever exactly. and, and ignore the fact that there was this massive economic crash in 2008 that like you know the entire economic system sort of went into free fall because people thought they knew what they were doing and didn't like and instead shifting the blame to Twitter,
0: but but the media is having to reframe the way it deals with people like Trump, isn't it? So that, so rather than just reporting his tweets in headlines as fact, uh, the journalists are having to change the way they deal with that and thinking about fact-checking it before they put it out. Because otherwise, we're just well, spreading if that they misinformation. Have time, yeah.
3: But the time is what has changed quite a lot. So everybody has to move amazingly fast. And if you have to take a position because the tweet is out and everybody has seen it, and you have to make a comment on that, I don't know if you have all this time to go and fact-check it. And this is, I think, the main characteristic of new media, the speed with which you have to have opinions, you have to go out. Yeah, and that's
4: important. I mean, can we, I mean, okay, so we d- no one wants to argue that Trump won because of social media or Twitter or something, but at the same time, Twitter, social media was part of what got Donald Trump and just enough votes for the Electoral College didn't win all the votes, didn't get the majority of votes, of course. Yeah. So it was an important thing in, s- in certain kinds of ways. It seems to me part of uh, what is it w- why it's important is what you've just suggested, is that it's a form of media which is both very fast-moving, but also requires people to be quite shrill in order to get the attention and get the followers. And, we and, can and it do drives a, really a certain kind of tone and a kind of genre of political communication yeah. that is a little bit different but from what we've tr- had before and, is, and creates a media environment in which some kinds of figures are going to flourish and others won't.
5: But, I mean, perhaps Twitter wasn't even the most important thing. Perhaps the most important thing was just the fact that he drew audiences to TV. Like, say so, you know you know Twitter was the way he, ex- he expressed itself him, himself like but you know he, he was a very strong TV presence he was entertaining he was controversial he gave mainstream news outlets like the things they need to drive their their ratings up and that delivers appetizers.
0: and you also attack the media
5: yeah yeah so I mean it look I mean that was part of the fun of Showing him on TV. It's just yeah, like, look, but look, but look, here's CNN and he's shouting about how awful CNN is. That's
3: it's not part of the fun. It's part of the fact that a lot of people were feeling that the media, they don't know what they're doing. They're not expressing people's opinions. And he just expressed that. So it's not only that he was. It's not because he was famous or he was on TV. is that he started using, by attacking the media, for example, something that a lot of people yeah. were feeling. That, uh, come on, they are talking for the elites and they never present anything and that it we find uh, uh, express the, uh, how people
0: feel.
5: It's, it's the sort of suppressed rage after 2008. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's still coming through.
0: OK, so maybe rebuilding trust is something that a lot of news organisations are working on at the moment. Um, and Jonathan Hayward talked a little bit about this, and he talked about how he felt it was really important to rebuild trust, um, and that there were commercial reasons for doing so.
2: We'd like people, publishers to start to realise that actually there's a really good market-based argument for that kind of independent regulation. I think for too long the industry has gone around saying to society, trust us, we're journalists. I think there may have been a time when that was a viable way of going about things. But I think, you know, for all sorts of reasons, trust in institutions generally is low. And I think, you know, publishers that actually want to command trust are going to have to earn trust. They're going to have to show that they're prepared not only to live by the sword, but to die by the sword. And I think independent regulation is a really important part of that.
0: OK, so our regulation expert Sally's left us, but, but can news organisations rebuild trust? And and how, how can they go about doing that?
4: Uh, well, I'm not sure that what Jonathan Hewitt says there necessarily makes sense in the new kind of media environment that we live in. I think I'd want to make the argument that what trust means for people now isn't reliable, objective, or you know, professional, but conforms to my expectations, fits with the worldview I already have. That seems to me the kind of political, cultural, media environment that is... Certainly, out in a lot of parts of, of of the internet, which is where where you simply won't believe things that come, as Sally was saying at the start, that come from outside of your expectations and your bubble. And I think what a lot of what's going on in terms of when people talk about trust is often that they don't really mean I believe it, and I believe it because it fits with what I already want to think.
3: This was always the case. I mean, usually that's how people were u- uh, u- uh, choosing the newspaper they were reading as well. So they were reading. The n- usually, you 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 choose the newspaper that conforms with. Sure, but uh, it wasn't quite as
4: simple as as that, was it? I mean, the newspapers did have might have a variety of different kinds of opinions expressed in them within within the perhaps a larger frame, mm-hmm. and there was also a certain expectation of some kind of professional activity of journalism that may have may have had effects in terms of excluding some voices, but had some kind of idea of standards around it. And it's very different from people looking to increase their hits, their Twitter followers, their number of followers on Facebook, or whatever it might be, where they're just directly wanting to affirm what people think in order to get more people on board.
0: Okay, we should, try and, we should try and sum up. I mean, where, where does all this leave us? Are we, are we, with this changing media landscape, are we in a better position as a democratic society or a worse position, or, or where are we going?
5: I've actually, when I look, think about the future, I find it quite terrifying. Just, <laughs> so I have just no idea what's going to happen like sometimes it feels like there's going to be some emergent democratic breakthrough and everything's going to be great and other times it feels like we're heading into world war three so
3: (laughs) but it's not the media that are going to make this democratic thing suddenly emerge my problem is that we sometimes we're thinking the media something separate without thinking how it works together with the political and social context at every moment so yes there are possibilities there But there are serious problems, on the other hand, in terms of democracy and how, um, well, the same media are used by very authoritarian, if not fascistic uh, groups and so on. So there are possibilities, but there are also the disadvantages as well.
4: So I think, well, given what we've heard, it it would seem to me plausible to say that the the kind of newspaper broadcasting media political system that we had up, up into the 90s and 2000s that arrangement of how public debate was organised and held and communicated and who owned and controlled it—that's clearly broken down. And part of that breaking down was what Levison was about, trying to rebuild it and give it a framework within which it might work. But it seems, from what wh- what the two of you are saying, that actually it's decisively gone, and we're entering into some kind of new arrangement of the relationship between communication systems, people's political activism, and how they form kind of thoughts and how public opinion, whatever that is, is formed and shaped. But I definitely think the most important thing we've learned is that I've got way more Twitter followers uh, than, than I have, you. Um, <laughs> And that may be to do with my narcissism, but I'm still going to stick with it. No, it's not, not, we're not, not your I'm narcissism. Winning. You are competing and, and I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> winning. I'm winning. I've seen you're a competing? huge <laughs>
0: narcissist. <laughs> okay, thank you all very much. Thank you. Um, Marina Prantoulis, Ben Little, Sally Broughton, uh, Michova. And uh, thank you to you for listening. A quick thanks to BBC Sky and ITV for the news clips in our intro. Do subscribe to us, please, and share us on, on Twitter and Facebook, if you like. Um, and if you like this, there's more on the Eastminster blog, ueapolitics.org. And follow Yeah, Alan. yeah
3: follow Alan. He needs more followers. Thank you very much. <laughs>